G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and on this week's edition of The Truth of It, we talk ACL's new logo, the Royal Commission into Aged Care, My Health Record, and Franklin Graham. G'day and welcome to The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events. And of course, you might ask why. Well, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is the truth of it. And today, I start with that which I uh, uh, mentioned last week, which was that I was going to make an announcement uh, about ACL. And the announcement is this. Uh, it is that we are, as an organisation, of course, moving into a new era. I've been in this role for about a year. And the exciting news is that we're going to be moving forward under a new logo, and a new mission statement. And for those of you who haven't seen it already, here it is. ACL, the Australian Christian Lobby, Truth Made Public. And you know, it's all based on a scripture that I read in Isaiah 59 verse 14 about a year ago when I came into this role. And it says this, it says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and righteousness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Um, You know, this logo really derives out of that verse that truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uh, And this really is the antidote to that verse. You see that there is a bold, strong font in the ACL lettering. Uh, You see that there is a square symbol to indicate the public square, and there is a speech bubble coming down from above, which indicates God's truth. It's a high calling, but it's one that we really pray that we can live up to. And you notice that the L is part of the speech bubble. So in all of our lobbying, we always hope that we can tell the truth and make truth public. Do you know, in relation to that scripture... um, Just to delve into the thinking behind this, Isaiah really observes some of the issues that characterized his time. He observes that there's uh, little justice. He says justice is turned back. Uh, He observes that uh, righteousness is really not around. It stands far away. And he observes that to depart from evil, you know, to do good, is actually to be made a prey, is to be attacked, to be targeted. And, you know, in this role for the last 12 months, I can't help but see that most days in the different things that come across my desk. Uh, Even before this role, you know, I was uh, involved in the Human Rights Law Alliance, helped to establish that, uh, ACL's legal clinic, before I stepped into the managing director role uh, with ACL. And, you know, there we saw so many people who needed legal assistance just for living out their faith because of their Christianity. You could take Joshua, the student who prayed for a friend with her permission, and he was disciplined by his university. You could take the doctor who spoke the truth about sexuality and gender identity and lost a professional accreditation for it. You could take the parents whose home was deemed unsafe for foster children because they believe the Bible, or the photographer, Jason, uh, who was sued uh, and taken to a state administrative tribunal simply for explaining his Christian beliefs to a prospective client, or you could take the white magazine case, a wedding magazine hounded out of business because they had not yet featured a same-sex wedding. These people, see, were all doing the right thing. These people, all of them, were what? Being salt and light, as Jesus called us to be. That's Joshua's story, right? At university, what a great thing to do. 
these people were using their gifts and talents uh, in service for God. That's the, the doctor, for example. Her unique expertise at a time like this, incredible to have that and to be able to unpick the confusion. These people were being witnesses to Christ, the photographer who, who talked about his Christian convictions with a prospective client. These people were each doing the right thing. And yet they were treated as though and punished as though they had done wrong. And, you know, I find in those cases that it just fulfills so many of the statements that Isaiah made for our own time. He who departs from evil, someone who does the right thing, is made a prey, is targeted, even with law. Uh, righteousness stands far away. You know, where was the understanding of what's actually right and what's actually wrong in these cases? Uh, or that justice is turned back. This is law used not in the cause of justice, but injustice. But, you know, those problems, they spill over into our cultural surroundings, and you see them everywhere. I can't help but see them everywhere uh, as I uh, take up this role at ACL. Uh, you can look at any one of the policy issues that are dear to our hearts. For example, abortion. It is affirmed by the law, and yet it represents layer upon layer of injustice, whether it's the injustice of you know, the fact that many of these women are at, in abortion clinics ask a Kathy Club, the sidewalk counsellor who we defended uh, or helped to uh, resource the defence of her in the High Court of Australia, she will tell you that many of these women are there because of domestic violence, uh, because they're being coerced and pushed, because they're all alone in the world uh, for reasons of great heartbreak. That's what that issue represents, as much as it represents those women who go to those places and callously kill a child because it's not convenient. Or the mere fact that that is the fate faced by countless multitudes of living, breathing human beings today. It's injustice. Um, what about the gender agenda that we take such an interest in. You know, freedom of information requests last week at gender clinics uh, throughout Australia, all the big ones, shows a 1,000% increase uh, in children receiving cross-sex hormones in Australia. That's the precursor to surgery, which cannot be fully reversed. Children struggling to that extent and being put down that pathway of irreversible change. And I'll never forget the stories uh, that Walt Heyer told, one of the first gender reassignment patients in the world uh, in the 1950s. And Walt talks of the countless people that he counsels who were pushed down this pathway as he was and cannot fully return and cannot get all that they lost back. Uh, he says, you know, as he counsels them, 50-odd percent reveal that this was all the result of child sexual abuse or other serious issues that were papered over in the name of ideology. And I think that that is the very definition of injustice. To see, as the, as, as the scripture says, the sins of the fathers visited upon the children. People who have done neither right nor wrong, but who are suffering under the darkness of ideologies invented and pushed upon them by those who are older. Injustice. But why is this so? You know, what started it all? And I think Isaiah 59 is so instructive. If you follow the logic in reverse, you know, you say there's no justice. Well, why? Well, because there's no righteousness. Because, of course, you can't have justice where there's no knowledge of what is right and wrong. Of course. Uh, but then it says further, you know, there's no righteousness. Well, why? Because there's no truth. Truth stumbled in the public squares because you can't have righteousness where the truth about good and evil, right and wrong, truth and lies is not known and not embrace. So herein lies the problem. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. It's almost like that's the beginning of so much social ill. 
you know, try telling the truth publicly on any of the issues that I just raised, uh, the abortion issue, the, even the religious freedom issue, the, the gender issue, you know, the result is never very nice. For 30 or 40 years, you know, our Western education system has gradually increased its embrace of an idea called postmodernism. Uh, when I went through school, pepperings of it were there and most people didn't spot it. It's obviously become very strong now in these days. It's an idea that at its very core and root it says there is no such thing as truth in the sense that you and I as Christians understand truth. You know, the, uh, one of the chief postmodern thinkers, Jacques Derrida, he wrote actually that one of the great problems with this Judeo-Christian Western ethic is, is, is that it is logos-centric. Uh, and you say, well, we know what Logos is. Of course, that's you know Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of John 1. And yes, of course, the fact that he exists and he is above all things and in all things is certainly attacked uh, by postmodernism. But more than that, Logos is the root word of dialogue and logic. And you know, what he's actually saying is that that very principle, that there would be something objective, some objective truth that sits above us all, that binds us together, that is common uh, to humanity and the world, that there is something ultimately real and true, which of course is God himself, but you know, truth itself is totally attacked. There's no such thing, says postmodernism, as that kind of truth. Uh, or um, dialogue, right? To engage in dialogue, to have conversations, well, you have to assume that that truth is there, that you can both reason upward to reach towards it, two people speaking together to find agreement in something that is common. Now, of course, that's not real Either. The idea that truth doesn't even exist in the sense that is truly truth, um, well, that's been taught. It's infected our education system for decades. And many of us were slow to spot it. But now the fruits of it are being seen. It's small wonder, you know, that we now live in a society where increasingly across the Western world, truth in the public squares is actively attacked actively suppressed. Christianity itself is being blamed for harms and for evils. Churches are being pressured with new morals, new laws. We know that. People who publicly witness to the truth are too often made a prey, as we read and as I talked about. Christians are undermined uh, with competing philosophies. And those who claim to know truth, and this is a criticism I have had on this logo and this tagline, those who claim to know truth are dismissed as arrogant at best and at worst intolerant and harmful. You know, those who will not be silent tend to be targeted relentlessly by the media, by the authorities, by activists and many others. And, you know, I read that verse and I thought, wow, truth has stumbled in the public squares. It's no wonder we're facing these trials and these difficulties. Um, and, of course, what is truth? Well, I believe it starts with God and Christ. And I believe that it's the word of God, it's the Bible. I believe that's all part of truth. Natural law is also truth. The created order and world is truth. Truth is something that's divinely authored and it flows through all of life. And all of those things, from the knowledge of God all the way down, have been pushed to one side. But, you know, Jesus had something to say about challenging circumstances uh, like this. You know, he was just telling people in his Sermon on the Mount about this reality that our faith in Christ will be the subject of persecution, of reviling, and of evil speaking. And in his next breath, you know, he tells us to be the salt of the earth. And he says, not salt that's lost its taste, that's actually become flavorless under the pressure that's come against us. 
No, no, salt that remains full of flavour, that he stands firm and remains, uh, that retains the character of Christ and the flavour that that gives, regardless of what happens. But he says also, you know, also be the light of the light of the world. Not a light that's been hidden under the basket because of the hostility that comes with shining it out. No, no, he says, you be a light that is such that it is a city set on a hill that can't be hidden, that it's that obvious. I find that incredible. And I ask myself, what am I doing that's that obvious, that I'm seen to be a carrier of Christ in the world and someone who speaks truth, for example. That's part of being the light, to bring truth into the public squares. And I think, you know, the solution is fairly clear. We've been told what it is. It is the truth. And truth makes sense of our world. Truth gives wisdom for our world. And truth really actually saves the world. Um, that's what it's all about. Um, and it's time to make truth public again. But I need your help. Uh, you know, we're a grassroots movement of about 150,000. Makes us one of the very biggest in the country. And it's no longer just about me speaking. Uh, I can do this uh, anytime. Uh, it's no longer about just ACL speaking. But, you know, it's actually about more and more. It's about you too. It's about all of us. It's about getting involved, being a voice for truth so that when we stand together, the public square is filled with voices for truth once again, a movement that cannot be ignored. As you know, there's going to be endless opportunities coming in, as, as, as we develop this brand and as ACL continues to grow. Uh, there's going to be endless opportunities coming for all of us to be lights in this world and to take truth into the public square together. Some of it will be pretty easy. Some of it will be more difficult. But I do want to ask you to be ready to help and to stand with ACL as we desire to make truth public like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Well, I don't think I'll scrunch that one up. But uh, we can get rid of that. It's saved on the computer. Um, I'm going to move on to a second issue, the first news item for this uh, episode, which is the Aged Care Royal Commission. Um, it was announced in September last year, and hearings kicked off in Adelaide this week. And, well, why? What caused it? Well, actually, the Prime Minister indicated. Um, you know, statistics were released around that time that showed a 170% increase in serious risk notices given to aged care providers and a 292% increase in significant non-compliance in the sector over a one-year period. Uh, that's when Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, when you're confronted with that, you ask a simple question. How widespread is this? Does it touch the whole sector? Now, until we have clear answers to those questions, I think Australians will be unsure. And, you know, there's evidence to suggest that he's on to something, that this is a really good idea. Uh, in fact, I, I applaud it. I think it's a fantastic idea. Uh, but there's more evidence just than those stats. You know, if you look at the Council of Ageing of Australia, they say that elder abuse is an epidemic and as high as 10% of older Australians have experienced it. That's huge. Uh, in 2016-17, there were 2,853 notifications of reportable assaults to the Department of Aged Care, and 348 of those were suspected unlawful sexual contact. Uh, that's actually reports, official reports, from 1.2% of people receiving permanent residential aged care. That's pretty high. Research done by the UN into the Australian uh, elder abuse situation uh, shows that there's, well, they, they estimate that there may be 20,000 unreported cases in Victoria of elder abuse, uh, neglect and exploitation, 20,000 in New South Wales, 25,000 in Queensland, perhaps 100,000 throughout Australia based on the data that they've been able to gather. 
But you know, there's no database in any state or territory to record incidents, uh, and there's widespread confusion about you know who to tell when such incidents happen. Now, I think all of that's very compelling, not to mention the many anecdotal stories that we hear and that are coming out through uh, the early days of hearings at the Commission. But why so little media coverage? It's a question that I have about this, actually. And I wondered at this, that there hasn't been much media fanfare. There hasn't been much said. Um, why so little interest? And I think there's probably several reasons. But, you know, I think that one reason is quite possibly the elephant in the room on this, uh, and that is euthanasia. Um, you know, euthanasia advocates, this was a huge issue, euthanasia, this time last year, uh, but it's gone conspicuously quiet more recently. Uh, and euthanasia advocates know what works for them and what works against them. Uh, and they're highly organised. Uh, and they know that elder abuse really works against them. It works against them, you know, because there's statistics from around the place and, and there's, there's this clear evidence that elder abuse and euthanasia are a deadly cocktail. Um, you can look, for example, to one of the um, jurisdictions that's had euthanasia for the longest, Oregon. Uh, and a fairly recent survey indicated that nearly 40% of euthanasia recipients in Oregon nominated concerns about being a burden on family and friends as a reason for choosing to die. Um, now, that's pretty serious, nearly 40%. Uh, and among the many verified cases of euthanasia being administered in shocking ways in Belgium and the Netherlands, where again, the Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon have had this for the longest, uh, and it's really quite out of control in Belgium and the Netherlands. You've got people over there being euthanized because they're blind, because they're depressed, uh, because they're alcoholics in one case, uh, because they're disabled, children with disabilities, three children actually with disabilities have been euthanized, the first in the world, uh, people who never requested it, people who are misdiagnosed, uh, and so on and so on. But amongst those cases, you know, I did a quick scan of some of the ones that we've documented. And there's, there's ones that affect the elderly as well, as you'd imagine. You know, an elderly Dutch woman in 2017, turns out, was euthanized without ever requesting it. The request was actually made for her by her family. Um, or uh, there's criminal investigations currently ongoing in the Netherlands again. And this is a case that happened a little while ago, it wasn't referred for some time for investigation, and when it was, it, anyway, it's now finally being investigated, uh, where a woman, an elderly patient, was forcibly euthanized by a doctor whilst her family held her down as she struggled. Now, that's awful. Um, there is actually the, the fact, the reported fact now, that one in 60 deaths under a GP's care in Belgium are now made without an explicit request by the patient. What does that mean for dementia patients who can't make an explicit request validly? Um, there's a 2011 survey of 800 family doctors in the Netherlands, and it found that nearly half had felt pressured by patients or their relatives to use euthanasia. So relatives of patients who are often elderly are pressuring doctors to use euthanasia. And how about this for one of the many anecdotal examples? I'll read you the example from uh, a Dutch case, but it was referred to by Lord Ashbourne in the House of Lords Euthanasia Debates in the UK. And he speaks of an old man who was dying of lung cancer. His symptoms were controlled, and he asked if he could die at home. When his children were told about his wish, they would not agree to take care of him. Even after repeated discussion, they refused. Instead, they pointed to their father's suffering and the need to finish things quickly in the name of humanity. When the doctor refused, they threatened to sue him. As the patient insisted on going home, a social worker went to investigate 
and she discovered that the patient's house was empty and every piece of furniture had been stripped out by the family. Do you know, if we think that euthanasia laws will not lead to a worsening of an elder abuse crisis, well, we need our heads read, because it will. That is, unfortunately, human nature and the development of seeds that are in our culture already. Um, do you know, I believe that you can really measure the health of a society in one way by how its elderly are treated. Um, Scripture is full of condemnation for those who abuse the vulnerable and the widow and the elderly. Um, and James writes, for example, that religion, which is pure before God, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's a good question, you know, how are we doing on the orphan and the widow principle? Um, of course, the orphan and the widow will be cared for where love of neighbour, as we love ourselves, is truly practised by people. Uh, and yet we're seeing the bitter fruit of so many avenues of corruption. You know, you think what feeds into elder abuse or what feeds into the neglect of the elderly? Well, it's the breakdown of family, for one, and the loneliness that that produces, particularly uh, in old age. And sometimes at no fault of the elderly person or the rise of narcissism, the living for ourselves without due regard for others or the utilitarian worldview where we measure people's usefulness, we measure people's value by how useful they are. Of course, if someone's getting old, well, they're less useful, they're less valuable, or self-gratification, you know, in the way we choose friends. Friends who can do things for us, friends who make us feel good, never friends who cost something. You know, it's rotten fruit from very rotten roots. But, you know, let me repeat this just in a new way. And this, as I was writing this, this occurred to me, and it challenged me. How am I doing? How are we doing with the orphan and the widow principle of James 1? You know, surely the worst hypocrisy is to shout for legislative and policy change in a particular area without bothering to legislate it in our own personal lives. Um, do you know the example par excellence of love of neighbour is given by Jesus as the Good Samaritan? And here's a guy who personally, himself, at cost to self, knelt in the dust, uh, administered uh, care, got his knees dirty, used his own time, spent his own money, risked himself personally at cost to serve the highest and best interests of somebody else. It's personal. We cannot virtue signal love of neighbour through calling others like the government uh, without doing it ourselves. As you know, the Good Samaritan could have lobbied the priest and the Levite to put together a committee to stop uh, you know, people getting bludgeoned to death on the side of the road might have been a good thing to do. But see, he also personally was involved. And to preach good without, without doing good um, is wrong. And uh, sometimes I convict myself when I speak, and uh, particularly as a lobbyist who's always preaching about good, um, I think I just did. But I trust it's useful uh, for all of us. My health record, uh, the next item on the agenda. And regardless of whether you opted in or out, uh, this is really worth noting, especially for parents, this feature of the My Health Record regime. On February the 4th, um, new My Health Record privacy laws came into effect, including this one. As soon as a child turns 14, their parents and guardians are automatically locked out of their health record. 
Uh, the child actually has to provide consent actively for their parents to see that health information. Um, and what this means is that if, you know, for example, a family doctor uh, is, is speaking to a parent about the child's health information, they cannot divulge that until the 14-year-old, for example, gives explicit consent. Now, this is a world of STIs, of abortion, of gender dysphoria. Uh, a child can hide any of those things from a parent uh, and not receive any support from the family. Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons why they might decide to do that. Uh, but the reason, you know, Dr. Pinskia, who's the chair of the RACGP expert committee, um, says, thinks, seems to think it's harmless and says something that's at first compelling. Uh, says if teenagers come from a family in which children want their parents to be involved in their health care, which is most of the time, why wouldn't they nominate the parent to be able to access the record? Now, of course, in my case growing up, I would have. Uh, it wouldn't have occurred to me not to give permission. It would have been weird to be asked permission. Um, uh, but... Uh, you know, there's a trend that's emerging in this day and age, in 2018, 2019, uh, which is concerning and which plays into this. Uh, and it is that safe school-style curriculum resources delve into this subject, uh, believe it or not. And there's an example for, uh, that we uncovered recently on a Victorian Education Department website called Fuse, uh, and that resource promotes various resources for teens. And one of them, for kids in years 8, 9 and VCE, so starting at the tender age of 15, which is below the age of consent, is a video. And it encourages these teens, as young as 15, remember, to be sexually active and access contraception without parental knowledge or consent. It encourages that. Um, the video makes light of STIs, says, well, it's no big deal. Uh, you can get it easily treated with a course of antibiotics, uh, they say. And this, you know, a, a key part of what they say is this note. Key point that's emphasised in the video is that once you're, by the time you're 15, you are not required to be on your parents' Medicare card. And the video shows how easy it is to go confidential on your health records and your sexual health consultations. That is in a Victorian Education Department website, a video, and it's common, more and more common, in modern-day education toolkits. That resource has actually been available since May 2016 on that particular website. And meanwhile, those pushing the gender agenda regularly promote the narrative um, that... Uh, that, uh, that, that Children who are suffering gender dysphoria may not be properly understood uh, by their parents. Their families might not, they might not feel like they belong. But of course, there's a peer group to whom they belong. There's this, again, distancing, particularly around gender issues. Um, or uh, you can see this spilling over into what I talked about last week, which is the issue of conversion therapy. Laws which could well say uh, that a non-affirming parent could lose custody of their children. Uh, you know, a, a, a child who goes to school where all this stuff is put out there uh, and goes to the school counsellor uh, and is talked to about gender issues or has activist groups coming in saying explore, experiment, discover, as they always do. You know, if 14-year-old Harry goes home to Dad and says, look, uh, we're thinking about putting me in a dress uh, and I've got gender issues, and Dad says, look, bad idea, son, at the moment, let's wait and see, that non-affirming parent under gender conversion proposals, the more radical ones, which, by the way, this is all written down, um, uh, could lose custody of that child. Um, this is 
the issue. And, you know, Dr Pinsky, the, the same the chair of the RACGP expert committee, says this again, which sounds fairly benign, says, but when you have dysfunctional families and children who are vulnerable, the law needs to provide them with protection. Well, OK, fair enough. But what happens when a child is deemed vulnerable because they want to change genders, but their parents prefer that they didn't? Do you know, I think the time's coming not that far away when we are going to find out. Do you know, Peter Hitchens tells a really instructive story, a very fascinating story, in a recent interview. Uh, he actually lived in Moscow uh, in 1991 in the aftermath of, uh, of Soviet Russia. In fact, the culture and the accoutrements of Soviet socialism were still around when he was there and the secret police everywhere and all sorts. He said it was terribly depressing. Uh, but, you know, he talks about the fact that there was this statue uh, in the local park, and children from the various schools were brought in procession to that statue to almost revere it. They actually sang hymns to it and recited poems and this kind of thing. And, you know, it was because that was a statue of Pavlik Morosov, uh, who was a child who the legend said, and it's probably not true, but the legend said that he was killed by his grandfather because he outed his parents to the state and he was therefore a martyr. And, you know, Peter Hitchens says that feature of the society that he saw, the oppression, the tyranny uh, that he saw, that feature to invade and deconstruct and destroy family life, particularly to put distance between a parent and a child, he says that's the most concerning trend that he sees played out in that time and he says increasingly played out in the West today. In fact, the UK High Court, this isn't just people like, people like Peter Hitchens, the UK High Court said exactly this, when it struck down what was called a named person scheme in Scotland because it was appointing a non-family guardian to sort of have certain um, uh, input into a child's life. And they said, no, you can't do that because the first mark of a totalitarian society is to distance children from their parents. Uh, and, you know, here I see just the seeds of a few really worrying trends. Um, the state will have power where the parent has no power. When will a child's health record be hidden from a parent well, the state decides. You know, when will a child be taught certain things through the education department about sexual identity and gender expression or, or even how to hide their medical records from their parents? Well, the state decides. You know, when will, the, when will a child be deemed vulnerable uh, such that their preferred gender identity or sexual expression, the mere questioning of that or well, the mere fact that it won't be celebrated in the home, that is cause for a child to be removed from parents. Well, the state decides. Um, many will think that this is a little bit of scaremongering. It isn't. All the people who fully believe in all of these things are well-placed in key policy roles today. Uh, and they're just waiting for the right climate and the right opportunities to push the agenda forward bit by bit, especially the Victorian Education Department, uh, but others as well. Uh, this is not a joke, it's very, very serious, and that's why we continue to advocate for parents' rights uh, in regards to raising their children in accordance with their moral and religious beliefs. Because, of course, children, uh, if we can no longer instruct them in the ways of what's right and according to a Christian faith, then, of course, that will be a very dark society indeed.
Um, finally, I'm going to close with Franklin Graham, a good news story. Um, Franklin Graham uh, is the son of Billy Graham, and he's on an evangelistic tour of Australia at the moment. Um, I think many will have heard of that. And this past weekend in Perth was the debut evening, and 13,000 people packed the Perth Arena, which was, I think it's nearly full for the Perth Arena. Uh, and he preached the story of blind Bartimaeus and how that he called on Jesus uh, to be healed. And at the end, uh, hundreds of people streamed forward to make a profession of faith. In fact, I think they had to delay the music at the end because there were so many people receiving counselling. And afterwards, Franklin Graham said, he said, God still uses the preaching of the gospel and inviting people to respond to the message of the gospel. And that's just biblical. You know, Romans ten fourteen, some great verses. It says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, and, you know, I've been really disappointed by some of the public criticism um, from Christian figures about Franklin Graham's visit and criticising him. Um, normally it's because of uh, some political views that he's expressed uh, or the fact that people think he might have been a bit too close to Donald Trump and, and things like this, you know, views that he might have on a political matter that the critic isn't totally aligned with. Um, and, you know, yes, Franklin Graham is bold. He speaks up. He tells it how it is. He, but he constantly defers back to Scripture. And that... I respect. He's a man who stands boldly in the public square. And because he doesn't say something or do something exactly as you or I would say or do it in a particular moment, doesn't mean it's helpful for someone on his own side to pop out of the trench and shoot him in the back of the head. Um, because actually, the most important thing about Franklin Graham's ministry is that he preaches God's word. Um, and whatever his failings, and to be honest, he's doing more for the kingdom of God than many of us could hope for in a lifetime, his message is timeless. And his message is essential. Um, you know, I always say politics is important. It matters in God's uh, world. Uh, it matters to God, righteousness in a nation. Uh, it's something that we definitely need to engage with. But there's no ultimate hope in politics. Uh, it's a false religion in that respect. We don't find ultimate hope there. We find ultimate hope in salvation, which comes from God and God alone. Uh, and, you know, the greatest truths, if we're going to be making truth public, as I said at the start of this broadcast, are the truths about God, Christ and salvation. And so, as the Apostle Paul says, you know, we rejoice that Christ is preached. Uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So great news there on the Franklin Graham tour. He's been to Mel uh, Perth. By the time this goes out, he will have been to Darwin. His remaining tour dates are Melbourne, February the 16th, Brisbane, February the 18th, Adelaide, February the 20th, and Sydney on February the 23rd and 24th. And if you want to register for any of those events, uh, you can get your tickets at grahamtour.billygraham.org and commend you to do it. Get involved and see the gospel preached. And we trust that there will be people who are converted. It does our job for us. We try and change minds when they get into politics. But God's the best mind changer of them all. I'm Mark Niles, and that was The Truth of It.